Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events. Welcome to the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. Here, we settle into the murky, tangled, and freaking hard parts of life to restore our relationship with the self so it can ripple out to the people we love, the work we do, and the world around us. If we can't fix what's wrong, then our grandchildren inherit it. In order to fix what's wrong, we have to talk about it. And we can't move that conversation forward if we're not willing to be real about where we are now. We have to push on the edge of what it means to connect. Otherwise, nothing will ever change. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong. I'm here to guide you through a series of radically honest conversations about what it means to be truly human in all of its messy, beautiful, hilarious, and heartbreaking glory. In our collective effort of looking inward, we're starting to do the outward work of reconnecting the world. While these discussions will guide you into the connectfulness practice, this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for the depth of work that you'd encounter with a licensed provider. If something in this episode touches you, reach out. That's where you initiate the ripple that restores relationships. You can learn more about my connectfulness counseling practice and our collective for therapists in private practice at connectfulness.com. This episode is brought to you by Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes is a simple, secure EHR platform for therapists in private practice. It keeps you organized and creates a container for all the details that run your practice so that you can focus on what really matters. Use the promo code CONNECTFULNESS and get two months free when you sign up at therapynotes.com. I'm going to be bold and I'm going to say that today's episode feels really magical to me. I've been starting to ask some of my clients, what is magic to them? And I'm getting back some really interesting answers, things like excitement and curiosity, which I think is wonderful because when when I think of magic, what I think about is transformation. And, you know, there's there's an alchemy to magic. There's um, something that literally transforms or appears to transform. And what what I'm really noticing is that the biggest ingredient, the biggest thing that we can all bring into our lives to create more magic is more curiosity. It's that openness. Because in that curious space, we, we actually create space. And that's the space where there's that possibility for that alchemy, for that transformation, for that magic. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the survival knot. Or actually, this is part one of a two-part series about the survival knot. Because what you'll learn from today's episode is that the survival knot actually, like, we, we have to do some foundational work before we can actually um, unravel it. But we're going to talk a bit about what it is. We're going to talk about, about the philosophy behind this. What I really want you to listen to is my guest, Heidi Schleifer. She brings a, a way about her, a, a vitality, a excitement, uh, playfulness. And that's the space that cultivates and creates this curiosity. And that curiosity is what allows for that transformative space. So I find this, this episode to be one that just delights me. 
Um, it was one of the most delightful conversations I've had the pleasure to have on this podcast. And this is part one of two, so there'll be more. So yes, without further ado, let me introduce you. I'm joined today by psychotherapist Heidi Schleifer. Heidi is an internationally renowned relationship builder and a motivational speaker. She guides, counsels, and teaches couples, partners, business associates, therapists, and families about relational maturity through what she calls the art of connection, teaching them how to turn their relationship into a living laboratory for the development of relational intelligence. Heidi is the founder of the Encounter-Centered Couples Transformation Approach, otherwise ECCT. ECCT lies at the intersection of philosophy, clinical theory, organizational methodology, and the new frontier of relational neurobiology and memory reconsolidation. Welcome, Heidi. Thank you for joining me here today. Oh, my goodness. You are so very welcome. I'm very happy to be with you. Oh, I'm really happy for this, too. Mm -hmm. You know, as I was preparing for this interview and I was scrolling around on your website and reading a bunch of your work and watching some of your videos, there's one particular quote on your website that um, kind of jumped out at me. And I thought I would read it back to you because it feels to me like it's, it's part of where this conversation also begins. You on your website, you write, world peace begins with the human family. Mm. And I think that there's so much in this because this is so much of what you're teaching. You're teaching us kind of how to come back to that place when, when we're living in a world that feels like it's in turmoil and our families are too. Mm. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Do you want me to say a little more about world peace begins with the human family? I think it would be so grounding. Please do. Uh, you know, there's a lovely book by Malcolm Gladwell called The Tipping Point. Mm-hmm. And have you read it? I have not read that book of his, now. Oh, it's a very wonderful book. And what it says is that when 3% of the population does something, it becomes an epidemic. So it can be an epidemic of violence. You know, if 3% of the population expresses violence, then violence becomes an epidemic. But if 3% of the population, for example, knows how to keep this relational space between them as sacred, if 3% of the population does that, it becomes an epidemic and our planet becomes covered with sacred space. And so here is something really important that I teach, and it is how to honor the relational space. It is based on a saying by Martin Buber, your relationship lives in the space between you. It doesn't live in one person, not in the other person, not even in the dialogue between them. It lives in the space they inhabit together. And he says, that space is sacred. Mm -hmm. So when we don't know how to hold the relational space as sacred, we pollute it automatically. And now you know we've polluted our space profoundly. But if we know how to hold it sacred, and imagine 3% of the population holding the relational space sacred, it will be a positive epidemic. Oh, and I, we it will sounds have so refreshing. Six, 
Yeah. Yeah. And you know, 3% is 90 million couples, which is doable. It is doable. 90 million couples around the planet who hold the relational space as sacred in a conscious, intentional way. That's the key right there. You're talking about the sacredness, but you're also talking about this conscious intention. And that's right. That's what you teach. You teach how to get to that place. Right, right, exactly. What are the steps that couples and families take so that their relational space is sacred? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because this is the stuff that I really feel needs to be outlined for us, that like we, we need to come back to the knowing of how to do this, to the remembering of how to do this, of how to hold these kinds of sacred spaces between us. You know, I love that you use the word remembering mm. because everything that I teach couples, they then deeply remember. It's as if their soul has been longing to step back into its essence, its soulful essence. And when you, when I teach, people go, oh, yeah, oh, that's what we promised each other under the chopa, you know, the, the wedding canopy yeah. or, or with the priest or the imam or whoever married us. That is what we promised each other. And then we forgot. And now we've got to remember. And remember is becoming a member again. Remember. Becoming a member again of the human family. And I make the, put the accent on human. A member again of the human family. Mm. Oh, that's just delicious. I can drink those words. <laughs> <laughs> I like your taste. (laughs) As as I look into your work a little bit more, you you talk a little bit about your guiding principle. And one of the things you you say is that what disconnects us is our reactive survival dance. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Right. So, you know, very interestingly, we all have a dance. My husband and I, the reactive dance, the survival dance, started in our honeymoon. He bought a camera. We were in Japan. He bought a camera that he was dreaming about, a Minolta, 1965. And it came with a manual, and it had 254 pages on how to have a relationship with a camera. And my husband is an engineer, and when he saw there's a manual on how to have a relationship with a camera, he got deep into that book. And he also realized there's no manual on how to have a relationship with this woman he just married. (laughs) And so he was engrossed in the book, and I wanted his eyes, and I wanted to hold hands, and I wanted romance. And the beginnings of the seed of our survival dance began there, where I started pulling at him and pushing him and asking of him and demanding of him. And he, uh, he started pushing me away, give me some space, leave me alone. And that was the beginning of our survival dance in which uh, my energy was pulling at him and his energy was pushing me out, needing space. And every couple 
past a survival dance often started in the honeymoon, in small. You know, the seed of that dance started there, and then it got bigger and bigger. Till it becomes desperate. My deepest longing, my most desperate longing, push against, pushes against your most dogged resistance, and vice versa. Yes. And so that impasse is what every single couple needs. And when they meet that impasse, it feels like they are profoundly disconnected. And they're not. It's just that it's a survival dance, and the survival dance will always disconnect you. Underneath there, you are profoundly connected. And that's what I teach people to reclaim is their essential connection. Mm. So then when you're teaching people how to reclaim these essential connections, you work as a guide. You, you're, from what I'm understanding, and I think I do this very much in my own practice with the couples I work with as well, you show up as a guide and you talk about this bridge, the, the bridge that Martin Buber talks about, but you also talk about it from this point of, you know, your couples are, you're teaching them how to walk over that bridge, how to learn how to really encounter one another. Right, right. So, you know, the guiding principle I teach every couple is that that survival dance will always disconnect them, no matter what. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter who's right. You know the saying, you can either be right or married. Exactly. So, you know, no matter what, doesn't matter who's right, the survival dance, if that's what you're in, will disconnect you. But what will connect you are three invisible connectors. And so here is the concept of the three invisible connectors. The first connector we've already spoken about is the consciousness that we are responsible 100%, each one of us, for the sanctity of the space between us that we decide the quality of that space. And I like to say that the space between the couple is the playground of the child. So every couple who knows how to enrich the space and make it fertile and safe and rich creates a rich playground for their children. And so the first invisible connector is the space, knowing how to honor and sanctify the space between. One invisible connector. And everybody knows that space. It's palpable. You know, you can go to friends who just had a terrible fight. They love you. So when you come in, they go, oh, Rebecca. But you can palpably put your finger inside of the toxicity of the space between in their home. And so the the responsibility for the cleanliness, the safety, the richness, the fertility, the warmth, the love in the space between. That's one invisible connector. The next one is the bridge you were talking about. There is a bridge between a couple. And the reason there is this invisible but powerful bridge is because only incompatible people fall in love with each other. Can you You say that again? That feels so important. (laughs) Only 
incompatible people fall in love with each other because what we love in the other is what we see in them that we are not fully connected to. And we see a wholeness in the other. We see them, them expressing qualities that we've been disconnected from, from the point of view of being in our wholeness. Those parts of us we're not connected to anymore. We see them over there and we fall in love with them. We fall in love actually with our own wholeness because with that person, we can learn again how to reconnect to what is disconnected in us. So that person is incompatible. They're totally different from us. You know, the grandmother or a friend of mine used to say, if the two of you are the same, one of you is superfluous. And that's true of couples. If we are the same, one of us is superfluous. And this longing to be the same really only means I'm afraid to grow. I'm afraid to reclaim. I'm afraid to be whole. I'm afraid to learn. You know, we fall in love with an incompatible person. And we need a bridge because we need to get to know them. The more we know them, the more we will be able to grow into our own wholeness. And so the bridge is there so one person can host, bring you into their world, and the other person can visit and come and be with you, really leaving their own world. There is a beautiful saying by the French poet Marcel Proust, L'aventure de la vie, ce n'est pas la découverte de, nou de nouveaux paysages, mais de pouvoir voir les anciens avec des nouveaux yeux. And that is the adventure of life is not the discovery of new landscapes, but the capacity to see the old one with new eyes. And that is really what you bring over the bridge when you visit your partner, is you bring those new eyes to a landscape you think you know, but actually with the new eyes, you'll discover it anew and you will discover what you actually don't know. And so the bridge is there so that a couple can become bilingual. You see, a good marriage is a bilingual marriage. In my relationship with Yumi, I speak Yumish and he speaks Haydish. You know, we've learned each other's languages and our languages are so different because we are incompatible. You know, he's alive in places I'm disconnected. I'm alive in places he's disconnected. And as we learn each other's language, we can slowly but surely achieve the wholeness, come back to our potential and our essence. So that's the bridge. As and the bridge is narrow. Language, we can come back to our potential and our wholeness. Yes, exactly right. And you know, the bridge is narrow. It is not there to meet in the middle and have a compromise. You know, often people think, let's meet in the middle of the bridge. But you know, in a compromise, there's always win-lose. And so yes, you win some, but you lose some. The bridge is there to be traveled completely to the other side. And then you can actually learn something new. You know, there's a beautiful rabbi by the name of the, the rabbi of Braslav. And he said, Kol aulam gesher tsar me'od which means in Hebrew, the whole world is a narrow bridge. 
And the most important thing is not to scare yourself. Don't scare yourself and cross it. Go and learn on the other side what there is to learn that in your own world, you do not know. That's the bridge. And it's another invisible connector that we receive as a gift as soon as we commit to a relationship. So that's number two. And number three is again from Martin Buber, The Encounter. Martin Buber wrote about the encounter because of his relationship with his own wife. Martin Buber and his wife, and I'm sorry to tell you, I don't know her name. <clears throat> I should Google it. But his wife and Martin had a very profound relationship, and they entered the zone of the encounter. The zone of the encounter is essence to essence, soul to soul. It's those magical moments where you feel completely connected with your partner. And it's not just with your partner. You can have an encounter in nature. You can walk in nature, and then suddenly you're in the zone of the encounter. You, it's not you and nature anymore. It's all one. And you smell everything, and you touch everything, and you hear everything. You are in the encounter zone. You You're can have it with music. A deep presence, a being. Huh? A, a deep presence of being with, of being with. Being with. Like, let's say, music. You know, you can mm -hmm. hear a piece of music. And you've heard it a million times. But suddenly, you're in the zone of the encounter. And it's a completely new experience. Because it's you and the, not you and the music anymore. It's a oneness. And the music is in every fiber of your being. That's you know, the encounter. In my last episode of this podcast, I talked with Maya Luna, and we talked about meeting the moment, like making the space between the moments a little longer, encountering the moment. And I think for our listeners who are just a little curious about what we're talking about, that might also be a reflection point to go right. Back. There's this right. opening that happens within us, and we can also have that kind of encounter with another, with our partners. With our partner. And, you know, we know that space with our partner because we are accidental tourists there. Every once in a while, something grabs us and we're there with our partner. And then something grabs us and we're out of there with our partner without our partner, actually. And so we're accidental tourists. We don't know how we got there. We don't know how we got yanked out of there. And the way these three invisible connectors connect is that when you honor the space and you cross the bridge, you create the conditions for the encounter. And that is really my guidance with couples. I teach them how to do those three things, how to honor the space and cross the bridge and create the conditions for the encounter in an intentional manner. So you're not an accidental tourist there anymore. You know how to create the conditions to be together in that way. It's really bringing us into consciousness and into a sacred action of being together. Yes indeed, into the sacred action of being together. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of this from the perspective of some of our listeners. And for those who are in relationships with um, 
a lot of strife or disconnect or who have lived, you know, their entire lives in those kinds of relationships from childhood forward. Some of this might feel like a reach. I, I don't believe that it is a reach, but I think I can understand how it might feel like a reach to some. You know, uh, Rebecca, so in my work, there's something I do so that people know that it's possible. Yeah. And what I do is I invite my couple, when I meet them, I first go into their wildest dream for their relationship because when you express your wildest dream, your essence comes forward. And I want to know people's essence mm-hmm. as we start our journey. But I also want to know their essence because I'm going to invite them to do something horrible. And what I'm going to invite them to do for 13 minutes, one, three, is to have their absolutely worst, most loaded, most embarrassing, most awful, most disgusting conversation for 13 minutes. And I'll tell you why 13. In Hebrew, every letter has a value. Mm-hmm. And the, the value of love is 13, ahava, 13, or the value of oneness is 13, echad. And so I like to have that awful, horrible, disgusting, horrible conversation in the name of oneness and love. And that's why 13 minutes. That's and so, so I tell them. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. I, I think it's so also, I, if I can just make one comment here, I think it's also... Um, an invitation into that oneness and love. It's setting an intention and it's already modeling how we can do that, how we can create that sacred space. Right, right. But now we're going to put the terrible, awful, disgusting conversation in the service of learning. Mm -hmm. And so for 13 minutes, the couples get into it. And some couples right away and some couples it takes a while and some couples are silent for a while and but I'm I'm watching my my watch you know and I told them that when 13 minutes are up I'm gonna go stop and they stop right then and there I said even in the middle of a word even if for the first time you're winning the argument you stop right then and there now this hand that comes down and says stop has a meta meaning because as you said some of us have lived inside of that conversation in our families. And there has never been a hand that came down and went, stop, and it stopped, totally stopped. You know, as children, some of us were terrified. We were inside of that conversation between our parents or the parents and the grandparents or whoever. And we never had that sensation of the safety of a hand that comes down and says, stop, and everything stopped. And so the hand coming down saying stop has that meta meaning also, but it's also for the couple now to do something they've never done. And here's what I I propose to them. You've been to a restaurant and you saw this couple, the couple that was here for 30 minutes, you saw them in the restaurant. It's not you. It's the couple in the restaurant. And I'm going to ask you to do something our brain is capable of doing. Our brain can externalize our behavior and observe it, which is an extraordinary capacity of the brain. And I'm going to ask you now to externalize the behavior you saw in 30 minutes, and I want you to describe what you see. However, the couple comes from another planet 
and the planet is called Wygelia. And so they speak Wygelian, which is a language you do not understand. So you don't even know a word that they said. You can hear the sound. You, you can see their body posture. You can see their facial expression. You can see what occurs in the middle there in that space. But you don't know what they said. And so here I'm beginning to teach the couple the distinction between process and content. Because the content really belongs to them and we're going to work with content. But first, let's change the process because this process we just observed isn't going to work for them. It's the survival band and it's going to disconnect them again and again and again. So you're, so you're helping them to step out of it because you're getting them exactly. in an optimal place. Exactly. Step out of it. And now let's see what did you see with a Wygelian man and a Wygelian woman and a Wygelian couple and the space between them. And what's really miraculous, Rebecca, is that couple, every couple, can step out of the survival dance and observe it. The reason they can is because that's the way our brain is structured. You see what I'm trying to say? It's yeah. not because I'm a good, a good quote unquote guide or therapist. It's because that's how people are. And so the couple will describe a dance they've been in, some of them for 30 years, 40 years, who knows how long they've been in that dance. They've never seen it. The Wajillian man shrinks. He says, he says less and less and less. The Wajillian woman gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Her words just stumble out of her face. There's tears in her eyes. And it says if there's a big wall between them and the man is hiding behind the wall and the woman is banging on the wall. You know, that's one dance. And the couple begins to see it. And their metaphors are rich. The images that they use are extraordinary. And I'm writing it all down because I'm going to reach back to them. You know, you were in a restaurant and there was a couple there and you observed them and here's what you saw, you know? And within half an hour, we have the Wygelian survival dance, which is the thing the couple will learn to say stop to. They can't yet because they don't yet have the relational muscle to say stop the way I said, stop. But that is what I'm going to be teaching them, is to develop the relational muscle that says stop to the Wygelian survival dance. And you know, I have a couple who went home after this uh, process, and they asked their three children to draw Wygelians. They said, these are extraterrestrial beings, and you have seen your mother and father sometimes disappear, and the extra, uh, extraterrestrial beings showed up. And we want you to draw them. We're going to put them on the refrigerator, and anytime you see us disappearing and the Wygelians are there, take us to the refrigerator so we can see what, that what has just occurred, and your parents can come back. What a beautiful way of inviting the children into that space between them. I agree. I agree. And, you know, the confusion of children who adore their mother and father, and suddenly it's not their mother and father anymore. They don't know it's the Nigerians, but it is, you know. And so it's nice. It gives 
the children agency, you know, to really say, we want you to be conscious and intentional with each other and not reactive. Can I ask you a question? Sure. What strikes me is that we're definitely talking about the space between the couple. And we're talking about the space that those who are, you know, in the presence of the couple experience too, the children. What's coming to my mind as we're talking about this, and, and I know from reading your work that you, you work with this in different ways, um, is the child within that adult, right? The, the child that grew up to become this person who's in the couple. That right. This is, this is a space that is so familiar in many ways, probably, to them. Yes. And so I'm, I'm just kind of holding that and holding this up. Well, yeah. you see, I, I give the couple three metaphors. Uh, I teach them once the Julians have been identified and described, I teach them three metaphors. One is the art of hosting. How do I take you into my world? The other is the art of visiting. How do I come over the bridge to be with you? But the third one is the neighborhoods. I describe that each person is like a big, big world that is expanding because we're always learning and acquiring new insight into living. And our world is filled with neighborhoods. Some we know, some we don't even know. They're in our world, but we don't know those neighborhoods. And what you're describing here is the neighborhood of childhood. And the neighborhood of childhood is a very important neighborhood to know how to visit well and to visit in such a way that sometimes the child who lives in that neighborhood has a visitor for the very first time. Because in that place, in that neighborhood of childhood, that little child has been all alone in very tough circumstances. And sometimes the partner learning how to visit the neighborhood of childhood, it's the first time the kid living in that neighborhood has a visitor, a champion, an advocate. What's you coming? see what I mean? I totally see what you mean here. And I'm thinking we need to maybe go back and talk about the art of hosting and the art of visiting because you you speak about that in such a way that really, um, really outlines how to be with. Right. Right. So once the couple knows the Wygelians and they know that I will not invite the Wygelians into our journey, we're <laughs> going to say to them, you know, you guys, please just don't disturb us because we've got love. We've got a big journey to undertake. That's when it's I tell the couple. It's such a delicious way with, with, with humor uh, and, and adventure and <laughs> You know, you're inviting in the curiosity. So I can see how you're you're both setting boundaries here, and you're you're inviting this, these couples into this adventure. Like I I can feel a different energetic pull to doing this work. Exactly, exactly. And you know, the guiding principle for me there is that life is not a problem to be solved. Partnership is not a problem to be solved. It's an adventure to be lived. 
And now I'm going to show you how we live that adventure because often we're not equipped to live that adventure. And now we're going to get the equipment for the adventure and then we can go on the adventure, you see. And you really captured what I am presenting to them, which is let's go on this big adventure. It's an adventure to be lived. And so I then teach the guiding principle and the three metaphors, the art of hosting, the art of visiting, and the neighborhoods. And I tell them we're going to visit lots of neighborhoods. And what is hosting? Why, first of all, why is it an art? It's because you get better and better and better at it. Hosting is challenging because it's taking someone into your world and being completely transparent and truthful. Transparent and truthful, the TNT approach is really challenging because often we don't even know our own truth. And so in hosting, we explore our truth in the most vulnerable way. And so it's challenging because, you know, in life we've learned to protect those core vulnerable places. And hosting is doing the very opposite. It's a total contradiction to some of the beliefs we have built up to sort of feel okay in the world. It says, I can be 100% honest with you and with myself. That's hosting. And that contradiction is so important, isn't it? That's, uh, that's where the work happens. A, that's like the magical moment. It's exactly right. Learning how to host really creates a whole new paradigm for the relationship. I can be myself with you 100%. And I can learn who the myself is with you. I can explore and find myself with you. That's hosting. It's a big, big art. And I say to the couple, I will teach you the art of hosting. The art of visiting is another art that you get better and better at because it requires Leaving the world you know, crossing the bridge as the new person in the now. The person who is totally present in the present. Meaning, allowing your world, what you know, to be the past. Because it is. Once you cross the bridge, it is the past. And there are many things in your world you know about your partner that you leave because you don't know anything of the present. You're just living it for the first time. And so learning to be truly present in the present is the challenge of visiting, allowing your own world to disappear, actually, and be here now, be here now, in the holy now, you know? Big stuff, that visiting thing huge it's it's a deep deep surrender exactly it's a deep surrender to now to being here now and you know there's a funny book uh, i think it's called yiddish zen or something and 
it has all these Zen scenes that sort of with a Yiddish twist, you know, a Yiddish accent. And this one says, be here now, be somewhere else later. Is that so hard to understand? You know, I mean, it's so true, right? Be here now, be somewhere else later. Is that so hard to understand? But that's what visiting is, is to be here now and be somewhere else later. It's big. You know, it's one of the hardest things things for us. Well, I, I think it's, we, it's so hard to practice presence in our exactly, lives. Exactly. Exactly. And visiting is one way to practice it. Yeah. It's a wonderful way to practice it. You see. And so that's what I'm now giving this couple is the possibility to grow the art of hosting, the art of visiting, and visiting the variety of neighborhoods that are in our world. And then, Rebecca, I say to them, are you willing for me to be your guide? Even though that couple has come to me to work with me for two full days, and you would think that there's a contract, but you know, till I let them know what I'm going to teach them and how I'm going to guide them, and till I let them know that the Wygenians don't interest me at all, I don't know whether they are wanting me as a guide because I'm not going to get confused at all with the content of the Wygelians. And I'm just going to teach them. We're, on, we're going on a big adventure to learn the art of hosting and the art of visiting. Can I be your guide? Because couples need to say yes to this because it's not a comfortable journey. It's a journey through the territory of the jungle, the treacherous territory of the impasse, the couple impasse, and they have to say yes to that. Yeah. Just if as, they want to. Just as you would hope that they could say yes to any other adventure that they choose to go on in their life. Exactly right. Yeah. But the yes has to be there because otherwise I'm the one attached to the adventure, but not they. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember that before I used to work in this way, before these three invisible connectors emerged, unfolded, revealed themselves to me, you know, as a, as a young therapist, I was often more committed to the marriage than the couple themselves. Mm-hmm. And I used to sweat and I used to try and I used to dream about them and I used to work with them and I was the committed one. Yeah. And one now, of my teachers, Terry Real, often talks about not getting ahead of our couples as well. Right, right, exactly. Are you willing to go on this adventure? Yeah. By the way, Terry is wonderful. <laughs> I've learned a lot from Terry, as you know, and I yeah. think that's also why I do this podcast. I want to learn a lot from many. So I am grateful that you are now right. guides as well. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, that is so special for you to really reach out. You're a very good listener, Rebecca. It's practice. <laughs> you're right <laughs> you, you know how to cross the bridge let me tell you I can feel you with me well oh, my goodness. husband might say otherwise sometimes <laughs> well listen you are not always visiting your husband and you know I'm going to tell you I'm going to tell you a time where my husband and I 
had to humbly learn that we need to walk our talk. And I think it'll give the listeners a way to understand about the bridge. Please. So my husband, Yumi, had a heart attack as a young man, 45, and then he had quadruple bypass, and then he had two stents and two stents and two stents. And this, the last two stents were complicated, and the doctor said, do not travel. Don't even go to your father. In Miami, we lived in Orlando, because you need to rest. And we came home, and my husband said, you know, we're going to go to my father. You know, we're going to visit him. And we're going to go to South Africa. We had plans. And I said, are you nuts? He said, we're going. No, we're not going. We're going. We're not going. And I did one of those awful things that parents sometimes do. I called our sons to let them know their father is nuts. You know, I needed allies there to, to, to make him see the right thing. And in the middle of that conversation, I saw that I was doing something called triangulating, where you find allies against one person, our kids and me against my husband. And I realized, wow, this is something I've been doing, and I need to stop it right here and then. And I explained to my sons that I'm stopping the conversation because I'm in a very bad triangle, which I will explain later, that I'm going to go talk to their father. And I looked at you and I said, you know, we teach the bridge. Should we maybe use it right now? Should we bridge with each other? And you said, absolutely. And so we sat. And now how you bridge is you sit very close at 18 inches from each other, gazing into each other's eyes at that proximity because the eyes are built to see the face of the other at that proximity. Children are born that way. You know, a little kid wants your attention, they'll take your face and bring it at 18 inches because there the eye only sees the other and the rest is, is not in focus. And so you sit at 18 inches and you hold hands because the skin is such a big part of our communication. As a matter of fact, 93% of communication is not in the words. It's in everything else, yeah. body and eyes and skin. And, and so you sit and we sat and you look and you put some gratitude in the space already. Like, thank you for being here with me. and Thank you for being alive. And thank you for being willing. You know, like you just put some gratitude in there because you're responsible for the quality of the space. So you put gratitude in there and just the two of us sitting and looking and putting gratitude instead of the Wygelian dance we did for two weeks unaware unaware we the teachers of the bridge unaware of the Wygelian dance because I was right you see mm -hmm. and so we looked and just looking like this, I actually have tears, you know, like, oh, my goodness. Instead of looking at my man this way, I've been sending darts at him. And so then you decide who's going to be the first host and who's going to be the first visitor. And I asked my husband if I could be the first host, and he accepted, and he came over the bridge and landed in my world. And as soon as he landed, I knew what I wanted to say, and it was, don't die. Don't die. 
that was my big fear, you see. And I grabbed him and held on to him. And as the visitor, he just brought his full, entire, loving presence to me. And I held on and I sobbed, Rebecca. I don't think I've sobbed like this ever. Don't die. And there was nothing else for me to say. You know, when you host, you don't say very much. You say the essence. And that was my essence. Don't die. And he helped me for a long, long time. And I cried it out. I cried it out. Till I was done. You know, I had visited the neighborhood. Don't die. And I felt grounded. And so I could come and visit him. And so he was the host and he invited me over. And he said three things that have changed my life. Mm. The first thing he said was, Haiti, I am not a heart. I am a man with a heart. And when I let that sink in, I realized I had done something to my husband that Martin Duber talks about. He says, there are two ways you can see another. You can see them as a thou, as the highest in them, as the divine in them, as their full essence. Or you can objectify them and make them an it. And what I had done is I had objectified my husband. I had made him into a heart, not a man with a heart, a heart. And I was going to control that heart. And I suddenly saw that I had done something that I never thought I would do to my husband. Is objectify him. And so I had to take in by listening and being a visitor that I had actually made my own husband into an it. And he was telling me as a host, he used very few words, I am not a heart, I'm a man with a heart. Mm. Once I understood that, I could say, tell me more, you know? And he said the second thing, which has changed my life. He said, this man with his heart wants to say yes to the question, is this a good day to die? And what I understood was he doesn't want to die when he's half dead already. He wants to die when he's fully alive, doing his passion, being vital, being all of uni. That's when he wants to die. And it was so clear to me in listening that I had rather have him half dead than completely dead. But it's not mine to decide. You know, when my man dies, I need to be his true ally in aliveness. And that was shocking, you know, that I had wanted to control his aliveness so he wouldn't die instead of being his ally for full aliveness, so he could die when it's the time to die. And so that just shook me completely, as you can imagine. And only when I understood that did I say, tell me more. Then he said, look, this man with his heart who wants to say, yes, this is a good day to die, wants to go to South Africa. And you know, it made so much sense that he needed to go But what we did then is we arrived at the third option. My father used to say, when there are two options, pick the third. 
And the third does not exist till you connect deeply. And the third option reveals itself. And what revealed itself was for us to design our South African trip so that we could rest and so that we could not work as much as we normally do and so that it can be a real vacation. And so we made it into a vacation. And believe it or not, because it was the third option, miracles occurred. First of all, we were upgraded just by miracle to the most unbelievable suite we've ever been in, in Rosebank, Johannesburg. And on the way back, the pilot of South African, the pilot of the plane, had been to our workshop and upgraded us to first class. <laughs> so the third option just brought all these miracles into our journey. And we celebrated Yumi's 70th birthday there. And it was probably the most exceptional trip we had ever taken because we took it together, really together. And from a place of total and, aliveness. Exactly. Both of us in total aliveness on that journey. And so you can see how easy even people who teach the bridge mm -hmm. easily can fall into the Wajilian dance, the dance of survival. And we were in it two weeks and polluted our space so badly. And then I was continuing to pollute it by calling our sons to let them know their father is nuts. And then we not only cleansed it and honored it and made it sacred and entered into the encounter, but then could also have that third option reveal itself. And we could actually have the trip of a lifetime. That is such a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing it. It's such a wonderful illustrator for how to host and how to visit. And, you know, what strikes me is you, you made mention of um, that when you're hosting, you don't say too much. You just say the essence. And I think right. that's an important piece that, that we should maybe come back to for a minute. All right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, that became clear to us through our visiting each other that our words, our many words, hide the, our truth and that our truth is something very deep that has very few words but men, much emotion. And so a host looks for the essence. So in my case, it was don't die. There was nothing else for me to say. Anything else I would say would just cover up the total terror I was getting in touch with. And so hosting means look for the few words, and it's five words or less. That's the, that's the formula. Five words or less. or less. And sometimes you have to explore a little bit, and then you say to your partner, let me just explore here a little bit. And then I'll give you the essence. And then we explore in many, many words, but we come to the essence. And sometimes the essence even surprises us. You know, like we, we've explored and then suddenly we discover at the core of this, the truth. It could have been, for example, I knew right away that it was Don Dye, but it, I could have explored, you know, I'm only not wanting to travel is because I don't... I feel like this has been such a complicated procedure and the doctor wanted to, you know, I could have explored it, but I would have landed in don't die. 
wherever you, you know? went, that's what you would have come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Yes. And you know, uh, Rebecca, I'm realizing that we gave the title Unraveling the Survival Map. And that is the, the um, let me see, how shall I say? Unraveling Survival Map is when a couple already knows how to visit the various neighborhoods, we can go to the toughest neighborhood where my toughest neighborhood meets your toughest neighborhood. And that particular process, the unraveling, is a, comp- is a whole day roadmap that today we won't ha- have the time to actually go into really. So we're probably going to have to do another podcast because, it, you know, your audience deserves to know how do you then unravel the knot that is there when my toughest neighborhood meets your toughest neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But to visit there, I have to be a good host and I have to be a good visitor because there's no way to visit the toughest neighborhood without having a bit of the art of hosting and the art of visiting under our belt. Because that, that is the, those are the skills that are going to help us to be able to tolerate the journey. Exactly. And tolerate is a really good word because in the toughest neighborhood, I am most triggered by you mm-hmm. and you are most triggered by me. And each piece takes three hours. And the reason it takes three hours is because we're going to do many, 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 many layers And also because the latest research on the brain shows that there is a window of opportunity for what is now called memory reconsolidation, which is that something old gets erased in the brain, some old wiring gets actually erased, and some new wiring gets produced. But you need that window of opportunity, which is five hours that the brain is now malleable during those five hours where it can actually reconsolidate. And when you do, when I do the unraveling of the survival dot, my purpose is for the couple to show up with a completely new brain at the end of that journey. A new roadmap. A new roadmap on the inside, exactly. And so a reconsolidated brain in in which the old beliefs have actually been erased and a new understanding of what who I am, who you are, and what relationship is, is now wired into the brain. And so it's a long process. It's three hours on both sides, about three, sometimes four on each side. do, Do two days worth of work. So the first day is kind of setting the stage and teaching everything we've talked about so far. Exactly. And the second day is the unraveling. Exactly right. Yep. Mm. Yep. And Rebecca, I don't do the unraveling with every couple because I only do it with a couple for whom art of hosting and art of visiting has just settled in comfortably. If it's not yet comfortably settled in, we'll do very important things on day two but not the unraveling, because it takes a certain skill to do the unraveling. Yeah. And so 
we may not do that one. We may continue on the journey of equipping ourselves for the adventure of a good relationship, but not the unraveling. That is such a beautiful and important point that not every couple is ready to do that work of unraveling yet. Right. Every couple is capable, Mm -hmm. but not every couple is ready. And so the readiness is what we're working on. I'm curious as as we're talking about this, if if you could speak a little bit into how you know when someone's ready or how they know when they're ready. Right, right. So you know, we visit on the first day many neighborhoods. We'll visit a precious neighborhood. And a precious neighborhood is a neighborhood where I feel vital, alive. I feel that's my essence, that's who I am. So, for example, one of your precious neighborhoods, Rebecca, is doing these podcasts. Mm-hmm. You know, you're totally in it. You you bring all of Rebecca. You are vital here. You are who you are. You're growing. That's a precious neighborhood. And the first neighborhood we visit is a precious neighborhood because it's easier for me to teach the skills, number one, but also because the strengths and resources of the relationship are in the precious neighborhoods. And we have many, you know, and so the couple chooses one and we visit it. Now for some couple, right away, just entering the precious neighborhood, the hosting and visiting is at a, at a good skill level, you know, and then I know, ooh, we may do the unraveling tomorrow because this first visit has already allowed the host to explore deeply and show a part of themselves they never knew even existed and the visitor to really be present. The second uh, neighborhood we visit is a neighborhood of challenge where I feel challenged. I struggle there. And again, for me, it shows me, is this couple going to be able to go to their toughest neighborhood? Is the neighborhood of challenge a successful I shouldn't say successful, but a visiting which the skill shows itself already, because it's harder to visit a, a neighborhood of challenge than a precious neighborhood. And so I like to observe, you know, how are the skills developing here? And when a couple does the neighborhood of challenge in a deep way, powerfully, entering an encounter zone that they've never entered before and they suddenly feel connected like they never have before, I know they're ready for the unraveling. This is the being with each other. This is, this is the with what I I call in my work, I call it being withness, (laughs) but I think being witness, (laughs) witness. Yeah. Like witness, but with, yes, yes. When it is there in the precious and in the challenge, I know we can go. But if the being witness is still challenging, if I can't, if I don't yet explore the depth of my truth, if I don't yet let you in completely, if you can't fully be present, we need to continue. And I have so many neighborhoods that we can visit that is going to shift their relationship completely. Neighborhood of childhood, you know, that is such a powerful neighborhood to visit. And I do that with the time machine. You know the time machine. I do. And do you have a little extra time? Can we can we explore yeah. a little? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So when I guide a couple to visit the neighborhood of childhood, 
I will have the host tell the first image that comes to their mind when their partner lands in their world. The first image of childhood that shows up there. And sometimes it's an image the person hasn't seen actually ever. Sometimes it's a total surprise. Why does that one come up, you know? But whatever comes up, that's the story they tell. Mm-hmm. And then the visitor does a piece of journeying, and it's the following. They tell the story of their partner in the third person, once upon a time, a little girl was born or a little boy was born, and they call them, you know, the name. And then the partner tells the story they know till that image. So whatever happened till that image, they tell it. So there's the beginning of a story. And I I have to tell you that when your partner with deep compassion and empathy and gentleness and tenderness tells your story in the third person, it's always profoundly moving. And then the person inserts the image that was told. And then the little girl or the little boy, and they tell that part of the story. And then they finish the story And they usually finish it in a whole new way because they suddenly see something they've never seen before. And and then they say the end. And what happens then, first of all, is that telling it in the third person, it becomes an archetypical story. It's a story of every little boy who lost a father when he was young and his mother remarried and the man who came into the picture was violent or... Whatever, you know, I'm just giving one possibility or the little girl who's bright, but the family isn't at her level and she feels so isolated because she she doesn't feel seen at all, you know, and and there is a birthday party in which finally she feels like it's going to happen now, but no, it doesn't, etc. You know, that like stories are archetypical. And when you tell it in the third person, you suddenly enter into such a much bigger story of every little boy and every little girl who ever went through that particular journey. And you become surrounded. Yes, exactly. The narrative itself is so meaningful. And now you have entered the big journey of humanity it isn't just your childhood and your pain and your situation and your hero's journey because each one of us is a hero. And when it's told, there's always a hero's journey that comes out. It's now the story of every boy and every girl in humanity who's had that particular journey. And you become part of a very big story. And that's when the partner takes the time machine. So we live in the 21st century. They have these amazing time machines. You can buy them. You can buy them on eBay, let's say. (laughs) And so they buy a time machine and they come back and they come back on the day of the story they told, you know, the image that came. But now they come back to talk to mother, to talk to father, and to even talk to the little girl or the little boy and to be a champion and to be grateful that 
that child was born, but then also to say some of the things that needed to be said that were never said to anyone, especially not to that little kid. And now you've got the partner of the future doing time travel, stepping into childhood and meeting a 10-year-old, let's say a man, meeting a 10-year-old little girl, and suddenly he sees that little girl. And he can say, don't get frightened. I'm the man you're going to marry. I know you're only 10, and this is so strange, a strange man coming into your room. But I've come here today because I've talked to your mom, and I've talked to your dad, and I've let them know some of the things that need to be known in this family. And now I'm coming to you. And I want you to know who you're going to be when you're big. And, you know, and you can just say, oh, the compassionate, deep, revelatory things that need to be said to the child. And people usually just cry together. You know, this 10-year-old has waited for that champion to show up. And here he is. And when, when it's done, the person says, have I said everything to everyone? And then the child might send the partner on, on missions, you know, to bring messages to a grandfather who was important or to a teacher who was important. And only when all the messages have been given, that's when the person says, and now I'm going to give you a big kiss on your forehead, if that's okay with you, and I'm going to meet you in the future. And the time machine brings both, you know, both of them back to the future where they meet in my room with me, you know, with a completely new understanding of everything. So the partner in this instance with the time machine has become the champion, has gone back right. and made explicit the things that weren't explicit before. Right, right. Made explicit the things and has and said the very things that have lived inside of the partner that who's a child now, of the partner for such a long time and has never been able to be pronounced, you know, and now. So it's only possible in the 21st century because we now have those machines you can get on eBay, you know? Mm -hmm. Those machines, I have one of those. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but it, it also, it does something really interesting to the narrative here, right? Because it changes the narrative to a narrative of, I'm seeing you see me and you're helping me to change the story here. You're, you're going back to these significant people in my life and you're letting them know that, that you see me and that you're with exactly, me. Exactly. Exactly. You know, intimacy is into me. See. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, now you see into me, you see me for the first time and you know, Something that always amazes me is that when people say goodbye, you know, like, let's say the, the husband came in and this is a 10-year-old girl, when they say goodbye, like he says goodbye to the 10-year-old, the 10-year-old sometimes doesn't want to let him go, don't go, and and the partner doesn't want to go, and they cry, and they, you know, they're just holding each other in that embrace. And as a result, you know, the 10-year-old has in their old brain that is atemporal, the picture of this champion. You see, that's there forever. They're never again alone there. Because thank goodness we, we got a brain that in that place, 
of the pictures of childhood is atemporal. So it's not 2019, it's whatever the date was when I was 10 and you're with me and I'm never alone there because now I have in my album, in my inner album, I have a picture of you showing up. I have a picture of me not wanting to let you go because I need you so much there. And I love you. Thank you for coming to be with me. You know, all that. The, the message that I, I got, and I even wrote this down in my notes before, before we started talking, in this area is it's almost like the host or the child in this case is saying, I want you to see the little one in me. I want you to, right. to see that part of me. And my right. imagination then goes to the place so that when we get caught in this conflict, you see where my pain is. You know, when we're in this. You know, my, you know me now and you know the 10 year old. And I often tell couples, you know, um, get a picture of that 10-year-old because that story, the one that came up, the 10-year-old story is so important. And so get a picture of the 10-year-old. So I used to carry a picture of Yumi as a four-year-old in my pocket for the longest time because I could already see there, you know, what emerged as a, a story of isolation and, and loneliness. And I... I just carried that little boy, you know, because I knew that the places where he needs me, he won't be able to speak them out of having closed off there. And so I knew who I was cherishing. Thank you for that. Mm. So it, it does strike me that there's a lot we haven't we haven't hit on yet. <laughs> we didn't. We didn't enter the title, you know, which was yeah. unraveling the survival novel. We needed, and you know, that's true. That's totally uh, uh, coherent yeah. because I never go to the survival novel unless everything you and I have traveled is traveled. Yeah, it, it really, there there really needs to be a foundation. Yeah, foundation of trust, a, a, of support, a solid, yeah, yes, solid a foundation. Solid foundation. Yeah, before we can go exactly, mm-hmm. exactly, a solid foundation. Exactly right of trust, yeah. safety, a sense of how the space between has just become so rich, and we have co-created it. You know, and now we, not because we're solving a problem, but just it's the next step in the adventure. Yeah. Yeah, that makes total sense. And and now that we're on this journey and that we're both on the adventure, now we can we can choose to go a little deeper. Exactly right. Yep. And we can create the encounter zone even with the toughest neighborhood. Mm. You see, because the whole purpose is always let's co-create the encounter zone let's be together in that zone of the encounter and now we can even go to the toughest neighborhood and create the encounter zone i love it hetty will you will you come back and will you talk with me more about you know i so love the way you listen you'll tell your husband that Hedy really loves the way I listen. He'll, he'll know exactly why, because he knows you there. Uh, it will be my joy and pleasure. Absolutely. 
Thank you. Yeah. This has been such a delight, and I'm really excited to share this with our listeners. Katie, can you tell our listeners how they can find you? Yes. My website, hedyschleifer.com, H-E-D-Y-S-C-H-L-E-I-F-E-R.com. And we'll include a link to that in our show notes as well. Perfect. Thank you. Forward to having you back. Thank you. A pleasure. <laughs> as, as it is mine. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope that you'll subscribe to the show so that you don't miss part two of Unraveling the Survival Knot with Heidi Schleifer. Listeners often ask how they can support the ongoing production of the Connectfulness Practice Podcast, and truly, the best way that you can is to simply subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcasting platform and hop on over to Apple Podcasts and write us a review. Learn more about my counseling practice and my collective for therapists in private practice at connectfulness.com. This episode was brought to you by Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes is a simple, secure EHR platform that keeps you organized and creates a container for all the details that run your private practice so that you can tend to what really matters. Use the promo code CONNECTFULNESS and get two months free when you sign up at therapynotes.com. I want to express deep gratitude for Sarah and Chris Ferris, the musicians behind the delicious soundtrack for the Connectfulness podcast, which was recorded and mixed at Kidney Stone Studio. The Connectfulness Practice Podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, and copyrighted by Connectfulness Counseling. Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com events.